Hello, it's John Dennis on Friday the 5th of March. Today, fresh concerns about Lord Ashcroft. He's accused of systematic tax avoidance of VAT on polls he commissioned for the Conservatives. The point about it is it's not illegal what he did. It's what's called tax avoidance, i.e. it's a bit of a trick or manoeuvre, which isn't against the law, but it's not very nice. And it turns out David Cameron has known for a month that Ashcroft wasn't paying tax on his UK earnings. What that exposed his colleagues to, including David Cameron, was them going on TV saying that they believed that Lord Ashcroft was doing everything in line with the commitment he undertook when he became a peer, which wasn't true. Meanwhile, today all eyes are on Gordon Brown as he gives evidence at the Chilcot inquiry. He'll of course come under some pressure about spending, um, whether he equipped the army and the military at the time with helicopters, looked after people with body armour and the right equipment, whether he was penny-pinching. Also today in the US, a surge in the proliferation of right-wing extremist patriot militias. And an aide to the Pope is implicated in a gay sex scandal. Over a period of about five months, we have uh, two black Cuban lads, that's a direct quote from one of the transcripts, uh, a former male model from Naples and a rugby player from Rome. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. Lord Ashcroft is accused today of systematic tax avoidance. The Guardian reveals he exploited his offshore status to avoid paying VAT on huge polls he commissioned for the Conservatives. Our investigations editor is David Lee. The new area of concern that's opened up about Ashcroft is about VAT this time. It seems that Ashcroft purchased what was billed at the time as the biggest piece of political polling ever in Britain on behalf of the Conservative Party. But it turns out he didn't pay full rate for it. He didn't pay VAT. And the reason why is he appears to have instructed the polling companies to send their bills, not to him, but to one of his companies in Belize, which is uh, counts then as an export order, and there's no VAT to be charged on that. So it's yet more evidence, really, of, of Ashcroft not paying the full tax, the same as the rest of us. Well, he seems to take the famous view that taxes are only for little people. Now, how much did this cost, this polling exercise, and what did it aim to find out? Other polling companies say that it might have cost as much or even more than quarter of a million, the, which means that the VAT involved was 40,000, 50,000 perhaps. The idea was the Tories lost the last election in 2005 and Ashcroft said, I am going to spend a lot of money to find out why and then I'm going to get the Tories to see sense and see things my way. So he commissioned two companies, Populous and YouGov, to... Uh, poll samples of 10,000 people, which is enormous in polling terms, and to do what are called tracking polls day by day in the run-up to the election to see what people were talking about and what was on their minds. The conclusions he published in a, in a book of his own called Smell the Coffee after the disastrous Tory defeat were that the Tory image was all wrong, the brand was all wrong, people thought they were opportunists, they were grubby, they were only a party for rich people, they were backward-looking and so on. Those were the kind of messages when he told Cameron about it. Cameron brought him back into the fold, made him deputy chairman. Cameron started to try and detoxify the Tory brand. So this piece of polling was not only very expensive, but very important. The point about it is it's not illegal what he did. It's what's called tax avoidance, i.e. it's a bit of a trick or manoeuvre, which isn't against the law, but it's not very nice. David Lee. Well, the election watchdog says £5 million donated to the Tory party from a company owned by Lord Ashcroft did not breach election laws. 
but the Electoral Commission criticised the Tories' lack of cooperation with their investigation. Whitehall correspondent Polly Curtis is in our Westminster office. She told me what the commissioners said. Fundamentally, they say that it's all legit and OK and um, they didn't find any evidence of wrongdoing. But beneath that verdict, there are some quite strong criticisms of both the law that surrounds this area and also the Conservative Party's actions in this inquiry and um, Lord Ashcroft himself. So they were looking into two issues. One is whether the company is a true and proper company that's operating in in this country on a fully kind of fledged basis. And the other is whether it was operating as a proxy for Lord Ashcroft, who couldn't give donations because he's non-dom, whether, whether it was kind of channeling money in. On the first account, they conclude that the company is a true company. They find that most of its cash actually comes from through a chain of companies all owned by Lord Ashcroft originating back in Belize but the law says that's okay so it's quite clear and all the way through this this inquiry it's quite clear that this is Ashcroft's money going through the company um, to the Conservative Party they found um, documents within the you know numerous documents within the Conservative Party talking about Ashcroft money rather than referring to Baywood Corporate Services money which was the company but um, on every single account, the Lord Ashcroft ha- has met the law. It does raise questions about the law, though. They had no powers to um, demand documents from Lord Ashcroft. So the only documentation they were able to look at was stuff that he gave voluntarily. Polly, what did the Tory? What do we know about the way the Tory High Command reacted when it learned that Ashcroft was a non-dom? The official line is that William Hague never asked, never needed to know. It was none of his business. Nevertheless, he found out three months ago or so, he still considered it to be a completely private matter for Lord Ashcroft. And um, he, so he therefore didn't tell his colleagues. What that exposed his colleagues to, including David Cameron, was them going on TV saying that they believed that Lord Ashcroft was doing everything in line with the commitment he undertook when he became a peer, which wasn't true. And he let them go on TV and say things which they believed to be true, but which subsequently revealed wasn't weren't true at all. Um, we now know um, that um, Cameron only found out a month ago, and this is, you know, after 10 years, he only found out a month ago. Polly Curtis. Well, how much damage has this Ashcroft controversy done to the Conservatives? Columnist Julian Glover. They knew Ashcroft was going to make the announcement on the Monday. They could have made it earlier. Um, it was chosen to be straight after the Tory conference, and there's questions over William Hague and what he knew and whether they've got into a great mess. There's also just a worry that this has made the Tory party look like it isn't a clean party, it isn't the party of the future and the new politics that people want, it's just the same old politics from the same old politicians. It could be quite harmful. And what does it tell us about the Tories' election strategy? I mean, the election's two months away, we think. You know, this, it doesn't look very competent, does it, <laughs> to, for want of a better word? No, I mean, of course... Journalists love talking about process, as Alistair Campbell used to say, so that we, when, when parties are in trouble, we don't talk about issues, policies, spending even. We start just saying who's in charge and which boss is, is doing well and badly. And maybe the only people who need to get the processes right internally are the Tories to benefit themselves. We shouldn't worry too much if, it, if, if it's in chaos. But it is a bit chaotic, I think. It isn't clear who's actually shaping the election campaign, who's shaping the message. Um, lots of people who get on quite well are doing it together but occasionally you might need some leadership. 
I think maybe Ashcroft's role in all of this is a bit of a diversion. Labour loves to see him as a, a sort of bogeyman figure who's moving down tanks in a sandpit and controlling marginal seats. In, in fact, although he's kept the party alive in the uh, early part of William Hague's leadership financially, he's been less important recently. They've got lots of money from other people. He does run or look after part of the marginal seats operation, and that may have an effect in some marginal seats, but he's not in any way the guy shaping either the policy or the programme for the party at the election. But the damage is much more. This just makes the whole party look tainted, even though it probably isn't. There's been a lot of focus by the Tories on what happens after the election, even if there's a hung parliament. You know, we're told there's going to be this emergency budget and so on. uh, That a lot of uh, a lot is going to hinge on that, but uh, not so much about between now and the election. Yes, I mean that's one charge could be put against them. Is they thought they were going to win. The polls said they were going to win. Journalists like us said they were going to win. And maybe they just sort of thought the election campaign, you just put a few posters up and deliver some leaflets. And actually, the real hard work is what you do in government. And maybe that's to no discredit to the Tory party, because parties can arrive in government full of ideas from the campaign, as Labour did in 97. And I think they were consciously trying to learn the lessons of that campaign. Labour fought a brilliant election in 97. They destroyed John Major. They had wonderful messages, great posters, 24 hours to save the NHS, wonderful last day message to get people to vote. Only problem was... Frank Dobson was in charge of the NHS, and they had no plan to save the NHS. They just kept doing the Tory policy for two years. In fact, they undid the Tory policy, kept the Tory spending, and then, over the next five years, finally worked out what they wanted to do. The Tory argument is, we're ready for power. On education this week, Michael Gove's been very active talking to people at conferences about his plans, which he says are radical, um, try and focus money on deprived pupils and make schools want to take them, improve the quality of schools. He's talking about government, not campaign, not slogans. Um, that's very ambitious, of course, if, if, if you uh, don't look like you're going to win the election outright, as they don't at the moment. Now, meanwhile, Julian, Gordon Brown is at uh, the Chilcot Inquiry into the Iraq War today. A difficult day for the Prime Minister? Well, it'll be a day everybody watches to see whether he says something either that's rude about Tony Blair or whether he sort of has to confess to some greater involvement than we've known. And, and in that way, it's difficult. Uh, of course, he isn't fundamentally blamed for the Iraq War by, by voters, um, they see him as part of the government that went to Iraq, but they think it was Tony Blair's war. And in reality, it was more Tony Blair, Blair's war than Gordon Brown's war. Um, he'll, of course, come under some pressure about spending, um, whether he equipped the army at, and the military at the time with helicopters, useful in Afghanistan too, and whether he looked after people with body armour and the right equipment, whether he was penny-pinching. Military always say that Gordon Brown doesn't really like dealing with soldiers. Um, so maybe there'll be some attempt to sort of expose whether he's responsible in some way for for some of the casualties by not giving them the equipment. But perhaps not the worst day, unless he absolutely gets tangled up and now looks like the man who was involved in Iraq and tried to hide from it. And Julian, are you uh, excited by the prospect of Tony Blair's memoirs? Ah, yeah. Well, I love prime ministerial memoirs, and I think I've read most of them. (laughs) I think the last 12 prime ministers have written memoirs, and no prime minister before that wrote memoirs, so it's definitely what they do. I don't know if you've seen the cover, but he's <laughs> open neck shirt, trying to look very casual. Uh, I'm not sure that's quite the look of a real prime minister. That's the look of a celebrity. And maybe that's what Tony Blair's trying to be in this book. It'll be quite emotional. It'll tell us about how it felt. Is it going to be a serious piece of history? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Julian Glover. And there's live coverage today of Gordon Brown at the Chilcot Inquiry. And afterwards, a special podcast with Guardian experts giving their reaction at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Hello, I'm Tom Clark and presenter of Politics Weekly. My co-presenter Allegra Stratton and I are taking our show on the road in the run-up to the election. 
First up will be Manchester with our top columnists Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris. Come along and hear the programme being recorded and pitch questions to them yourselves. Tickets are £5 and to reserve places email us at politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. A new report says there's been a dramatic increase in the proliferation of far-right groups in the United States. In our Washington office is Chris McGreal. It's produced by the Southern Poverty Law Centre, which is um, a civil rights group that's been at the forefront of focusing on extremist militias uh, and racist hate groups and and trying to call them to account. Essentially what the report says is that there's been a surge in the number of such groups and extremist patriot groups since Barack Obama came to power. The number's up nearly 250%, and that what we're seeing in the United States now is a return to the 1990s when these groups were not only popular but extremely violent before they were somewhat discredited after the um, Oklahoma City bombing that killed 168 people. Apart from the election of Obama, are there any, any other factors that are fueling this uh, surge in extremist groups? Yes, um, it, it says there's a whole series of things that have come together, but they're, they're sort of highlighted by Obama as well. They say that there's a great deal of anger over soaring public debt, over the troubled economy, over the changing demographics of the country, which in many ways means immigration, and an array of initiatives by Obama that have been branded socialist or even fascist by his political opponents. And underpinning this is a growing uh, support for conspiracy theories, particularly that the United States is part of some plot to impose one world government. And that the, uh, an important factor in all of this is that this, these theories are being given increasing credibility on parts of the mass media, particularly uh, television stations like Fox News. Chris McGreal. A scandal has erupted in Italy involving allegations of corruption, the procurement of male prostitutes and the household of Pope Benedict. With the details is our Rome correspondent, John Hooper. It involves a gentleman of his holiness, a member of one of the most elite and exclusive fraternities on earth, the lay attendants or ceremonial ushers who attend upon the Pope, um, 61-year-old Angelo Balducci, who's a senior Italian government figure who's been caught up in a wide-ranging corruption scandal. And within the investigation into this affair, which has to do with the distribution of public works contracts, wiretaps were made that revealed his private life, um, which involved allegedly the procurement by a Vatican chorister, what is more, of men for um, him. So male prostitutes, in other words. Indeed. Um, That is certainly the implication that comes through in a number of the conversations, some of which um, take place uh, between the Uh, He's a Nigerian Vatican chorister who's actually inside St. Peter's uh, in one exchange or has recently been inside uh, St. Peter's for rehearsals and um, the Italian government official. 
And do we know anything about the men who were allegedly procured by this chorister? Well, over a period of about five months, um, we have uh, two black Cuban lads. That's a direct quote from one of the transcripts. Uh, a former male model from Naples and a rugby player from Rome. And what's the Vatican said about this? Nothing at all. Um, it has said nothing in uh, public, at least. Um, privately, uh, sources give different accounts of how uh, the Vatican will react. Uh, one is that it will wait on the judgment of the courts, um, which have yet to bring charges against Balducci. And uh, the other uh, version is that uh, he will simply quietly and uh, in, uh, disappear from the Vatican's records. And what about the chorister? He's been fired. Um, he was got rid of apparently on Wednesday morning uh, after the Vatican became aware of the details of the uh, investigation. And he has since given an interview to uh, a weekly news magazine, which uh, has been published today. And uh, in that, uh, he says that uh, he was uh, first introduced to Balducci about 10 years ago and he said uh, he asked me if I could procure other men for him um, he told me he was married and that I had to do it in great secrecy you can imagine how embarrassing all of this is for the Vatican John Hooper in Rome Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily and my name's John Dennis thanks for listening <laughs>